We're climbing a steep hill through a tunnel and crouching down. Oh my goodness. Welcome to our fourth episode in our special 10-episode series about Turkey as the crossroads of faith, both ancient and modern. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. Today on In Good Faith, we're exploring, literally, ancient Christianity in Turkey. In fact, for this episode, we scrunch down into tunnels in an underground city in the Cappadocia region and toured churches in caves and contemplated mosaics that were almost 2,000 years old. We also speak with Professors Mark Ellison and Matthew Gray about the architecture and sacred spaces of the early Christians over the three to 400 years from the time of Jesus and his crucifixion to the Byzantine era and what it might have felt like to worship together in those early days of Christianity. So let's get started. If you look at a map, Cappadocia, or as we say in the West, Cappadocia, is located in central Turkey, about 500 miles east of Istanbul and 300 miles north of Aleppo, Syria. We flew from Istanbul to Cappadocia one morning and then jumped into our touring van to drive through a mesmerizing countryside made up of soft rock formations, which they call fairy chimneys and to us look like nothing so much as wizard hats. Anciently, people lived in caves in these formations to protect themselves from invaders. But under the Roman Empire, while Christians were still a political and religious minority, early followers of the Jesus movement lived and worshipped underground to avoid being harassed by the imperial administrators and security forces. We visited the Kaimakli underground city near the town of Nevshehir, one of the most famous of the 200 underground communities in the region. We entered through a tourist area with gift shops selling magnets and stickers representing the hot air balloon tours in the area that are a colorful daily tourist attraction. A ticket taker waited for us at a set of turnstiles and then we descended past what used to be animal shelters and food cellars deep into the earth along pale, rough-hewn sedimentary rock walls. So about 65 meters underground, maybe close to 200 feet, is one of the lower levels we can get to today in the Kaimakla underground caves here. And since early Christianity, mid-first century, until 300 when Christianity was legalized and actually became the religion of the emperor and the court, sometimes Christians had to have a place where they could take refuge. So not only did they make rooms where they could live, places where they could cook, the one big kitchen that everyone shared, they also took time to carve out a church, which I think shows a certain amount of dedication. And then there were certain rooms where you could go to, there was a cross in the wall that you could be alone and have your personal time for thinking, for meditation. But they also kept these ready at all times. It was stocked with wine, it was stocked with water, it was stocked with everything that they would need if they had to block off one entrance, if they could, with a, a big rolling stone which they carved into place, and they could stay. They had to be sure that everything was ready so that when people came who were the non-Christians, who were the danger to them, that they could come here and just sit tight. And you could do this for several months until finally you start getting sick, you have no vitamin D, you need to see the sun. But this is just an incredible complex and, and all the forethought that went into it, even we, we, we sort of feel a little squeamish as we go th through some of these really low ceiling tunnels, but even that was a big help because if an invader did come, first they could only come one at a time and then they had to be bent over and then they were, any stranger coming in here wouldn't know the way. 
and they would dig these little pits, and the people who knew and who were familiar with this could step over those, but the invader could fall into that pit. So not only a place with everything they would need, but also a place that protected them. And this went on for over 200 years. That's just amazing to me, the history of this place. So this isn't like digging through granite, which would be almost impossible with the tools they would have had. But you can put your hand up here, and if I scrape, it's coming off in my hand. So it was this particular kind of soft stone. And so they were able to dig and to chip away, but also had to be very mindful of where are they going to put air tunnels? Where are they going to try and get rid of the smoke? And also, you're underneath a chamber that's above you. How thick is it? How thick is safe that it won't break through? There was a lot going on here. We headed even deeper into the cave through a narrow tunnel that curved and descended until we had to crouch to move through it. These are like rabbit tunnels with no rhyme or reason. You would really have to memorize your way not to get lost. Then the passage narrowed and we couldn't see ahead past the dip of the tunnel. And just when we thought it was too narrow to move forward anymore, the walls opened up into a series of small rooms tall enough to stand in. So even as deep as this is, it's a church. They had to dig down, but they made living spaces. They had places even to bury the dead and to wall them off. But what you're seeing here is actually an underground church. And so you can see the different arches and before you come in, if you look over the door, in just a few places, there's a cross carved in to the rock. Amazing. And there isn't just this space for group reflection. The people here took the time and put in the effort to make spaces for individual contemplation. We took another passage, uphill this time, to a small carved grotto. So almost like a little place for reflection, like a little mini monastery where someone could come and pray and they had carved the cross here. So the carved church was a place for community prayer, but this was a place where just one person could come to have some time alone to worship and to think, to ponder. I've never been in a situation where my life was in danger because of what I believe. That if I express what I believe, something terrible could happen to me, to my family, my job, my life. And so I try and reflect on the strength of their faith and how much they must have believed. First of all, to start digging this and to chip away at it and then to include the religious spaces and then to do all the work, because there's all the work you would do in your normal life to provide the wine and the grain and the water, but then to be sure you also had these underground stocks. And boy, if I had a time machine and could just be here for a few minutes to watch the process or ask the people what they were afraid of, what might happen, why they were this committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, those early Christians, because they were the very first ones who had heard as this spread north, and then it's going to turn into 60% of the places that are mentioned in the New Testament happen in present-day Turkey. So it really turns into the Christian church in this era during those centuries. It's remarkable to see that it started underground in places like this. Usually we talk about the underground church as a metaphor, but here in the Cappadocia region, it's the reality. To talk with me more about the development of sacred spaces at the beginning of early Christianity, I invited Mark Ellison and Matthew Gray into the studio. Mark Ellison is a professor in early Christianity and holds a PhD from Vanderbilt University in early Christianity and early Christian art. He's the co-editor of the recently published anthology Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. Matthew Gray is a professor in ancient scripture and ancient Near Eastern studies. He holds a PhD from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill with an emphasis in archaeology and early Judaism. He's written a chapter in Ancient Christians entitled Sacred Spaces and Places of Worship, 
from house churches to monumental basilicas. Here's Matthew. So Christian building of churches is actually a process that developed over several centuries from the initial beginnings of the early Jesus movement all the way through the Byzantine period and, of course, beyond. But for the purposes of this volume and the chapters that Mark and I both wrote, we're focusing on the development of Christian spaces of worship and Christian worship practices from about the first century, about the time of the New Testament, all the way through about the time of the fourth or fifth or even sixth centuries uh, Byzantine era. And so I think to understand the development of Christian churches and places of worship during that period, I think it's helpful to start off by remembering that initially the earliest followers of Jesus were in fact, part of the larger Jewish community of the first century. So reading through New Testament texts like the book of Acts and some of the gospels and even the uh, letters of Paul, we get a sense that the earliest followers of Jesus were fully immersed in the Jewish institutions of their day. So they're in synagogues, which are public gathering spaces where they are debating their views of the kingdom of heaven that's coming, uh, their views of salvation, but within that Jewish community space. And of course, to worship the God of Israel, they would be going to the Jerusalem temple where the God of Israel lived and was worshiped by the Jewish community. So I think it's interesting that from a New Testament perspective, it very much starts in that Jewish context, but that over time, uh, as followers of Jesus started gradually becoming a little more separate from their Jewish roots, or you know, whether it be through increasing marginalization within the Jewish community or the increasing number of Gentile converts, uh, the early followers of Jesus had to begin finding their own spaces in which they could gather, uh, read scripture together, form their own community identity. And, uh, and so I think that's the beginnings of the story of distinctly Christian space beginning around the time of the New Testament. So where did they meet? So initially, for the first century and probably well into the second and even third centuries, the initial spaces in which Christians would gather would be homes. Uh, The congregation sizes and the resources of the community are not yet allowing or even necessitating large monumental church structures like would be built later on. So for the first several generations of Christianity, Christians are basically meeting in the homes of fellow believers. Uh, If they had a, a, a wealthy patron or patroness who owned a, a house, that that house could be opened up to maybe 20 to 50 fellow believers in the area. And once a week, perhaps, they would gather in that domestic mm. space and perform their earliest uh, fellowship and meal and scripture reading and prayer together. And uh, that phenomenon is what we sometimes refer to as the house church. Uh, Long before there are church buildings, it's in the home where these earliest Christians were gathering. Which a lot of us have experienced during the COVID years. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Then the temple is gone, 70 AD. So even for those who are Jewish, but not part of the Christian way or tradition, they've lost that center of worship. Did that change what Christians did? I think it did, uh, especially because the temple was seen by not only Jews of the first century, but even the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus as the place where the God of Israel could be worshipped. And so, as the Christian movement generally starts becoming separate from the larger Jewish community, and certainly when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, that's just another key moment where Christians are going to have to find their own spaces to gather and worship God, including through the person of Jesus. Do we have any inkling what the very first purpose-built Christian church was or where? Well, that's a great question. Can we know that? Yeah, it's actually really difficult because for those first two and a half centuries when Christians were meeting in homes, there really is no distinctive Christian material culture yet. Uh, So there's no uh, house that specifically looks Christian. There's not a robust Christian art that's developed, and Mark can talk more to this in a moment. Uh, And so as a result, for the first, second, and even into the early third century, it's almost impossible to clearly identify what house or houses was used by Christians. So for that period, we just need to assess homes generally and allow homes that have been excavated in you know, Pompeii or Ostia or Corinth or Ephesus just to give us a sense of what domestic structures were like, to help us envision what type of assembly and gathering practices Christians would have experienced there. So it's really not until the middle of the third century, probably around the 240s AD, when we begin to see traces in the archaeological record of 
changes and renovations made to space specifically to facilitate Christian worship. And this You write phase, about knocking out a wall or two. Exactly. So this phase is what we sometimes refer to using the phrase, uh, you know, domus ecclesia, right? This assembly house where you could take a residential space. And as you said, by renovating it, maybe knocking out a few walls, adding a few rooms, you can adjust that residential space specifically for the purpose of facilitating Christian ritual practices uh, by adding maybe a few modest liturgical items like a baptistry or maybe a, a platform for speaking and maybe it's a little bit of space for the Eucharist. So I'd say that the the uh, house churches or the Domus Ecclesiae of the mid-third century are the first time that we see an ar- architectural and archaeological trace of Christian gathering spaces. And then finally, I'd say the, probably the third key moment of the development of these spaces will probably be in the, uh, the fourth century and beyond. But you've stood in these houses, in these places, been part of excavations. Can you tell me what that felt like or what you are thinking about those early Christian predecessors? Yeah, I, I think it's a really fascinating way to connect with our own predecessors in the faith, uh, especially as within the Latter-day Saint tradition, we've had our own periods of development and architectural spaces and variety of spaces where we've met early on, of course, you know, whether it be open air places or, or modest homes, uh, eventually chapels or assembly halls and even temples. You know, as a Latter-day Saint, we're very interested in sacred spaces and places of worship and how that not only connects us with God, but also connects us with each other as a community. And so being able to spend time thinking about these early Christian spaces, whether they be homes where you're walking through a, a first century house, uh, whether or not Christians actually met in that particular house that you're excavating, but still being able to think about how that type of space could have facilitated the Christian worship experience. And then walking through a Domus Ecclesia or a later Basilica, uh, um, it's really remarkable, I think, to connect with the faith and the religious worship experience of our predecessors in ancient Christianity. And and to me, those seem like very small communities that were created, whoever would would fit. Initially, they were. So in these house churches, it's probably going to be a small community of 20 to 50 believers, perhaps, gathering in one of these homes uh, that's owned by um, a member who can afford a home. Uh, and that member opened up the house, and it's in that house that we would you know, gather, or I should say early Christians would gather in an atrium, perhaps, to, to greet each other. Uh, they might retire to the dining hall, the dining room of the house, where they could dine and share a fellowship meal with one another, typically at the end of which they'd have bread and wine to think about Jesus, and then just imagining them retiring to the garden of the house where they would read scripture together and pray together and sing hymns together and just being able to, to spend time in those spaces and thinking about the possibilities of what Christian worship could have been like in that first, second, and early third century uh, is just a remarkable way to reach across time and uh, enjoy the fellowship of faith. Which is a really great lead-in to your chapter, Mark. And I'm wondering, I think we're open to the same page here. Would you mind just reading this beautiful picture that you paint of that early worship in the opening paragraph of the chapter? Sure. A small group of people, about 15 to 20 in number, gathers in a house somewhere in the first century Mediterranean world. They crowd together in a dining room or maybe they sit among columns encircling an open-air atrium. If it is early morning or night... Torches and small oil lamps provide faint, flickering light. We see women and men, old and young, the host who owns the house, the household slaves, children, a crying baby or two, a few of the host's relatives and longtime friends, and some new acquaintances. They have gathered to worship. They pray. They chant psalms and hymns. They listen to the stories and teachings of a visiting apostle. A reverent fire moves members of the group to prophesy, speak words of edification, give messages of comfort. They share a meal together, taking special care to pray over a round loaf of flat bread and a cup of wine, which everyone shares. There is a joyful familial feeling to the group. They are Christians, Nazarenes, the way, followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and in gatherings like this across the ancient world, they enacted the earliest forms of the rituals of Christian worship. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Most of us have a religious tradition. We can picture the buildings that we've met in. We picture the order of service, the way things are done. It's so interesting to me to look back and say, how close can we come to understanding what you just read 
Because Jesus didn't leave a list of things to do other than repent and prepare for the kingdom of God and how we treat one another. So I wonder if you'd comment on the development of what we would call the ways of worship that are done today. Sure. In the first century, as we read texts of the New Testament, we gather from those texts that Christians are meeting in homes, that they're, that they're reading and talking together and teaching each other and enjoying a shared meal, part of which is specifically in remembrance of Jesus with the bread and the wine. But it's very undefined. And over the first few centuries, it gets more defined. By the time we get to the mid-second century, Justin Martyr describes how Sunday worship is working in his area. It's a little bit more regimented where there's like a process of some readings and from Old and New Testament and some teaching based on those. But... It's, it's not all spelled out like the, the teacher is allowed to go on as long as he wants. And then towards the end, they have the, the communion, the Eucharist, and a portion of that is sent to people who can't make it there by some of the deacons. And, and that's, it's, it's in the process of development. By the time we get to the third and fourth centuries, there's a much more established liturgy where there's a formal procession and an entrance into the church, then the liturgy of the word, and then everyone who's not baptized is dismissed. And then there's the liturgy of the Eucharist, the the blessings and prayers, getting ready for blessing this bread and wine and just the baptized partaking of it before a solemn Beyond just these simple things you've listed, prayer, you mentioned baptism, you mentioned singing, hymns, and then the Eucharist. I mean, are those the basics? If we've got those, are we pretty close to some form of what the early church was. Well, those were the four forms of worship that I chose to discuss in in my chapter because they were the ones that most Christians in late antiquity all experienced. And then there were other forms of worship that Christians also developed, pilgrimage and rituals related to penitential practices and the beginnings of marriage liturgy in the fourth century and blessings pronounced upon a bride and groom as they married and the development of the liturgical calendar and the hour of prayer. These all start the development in the early period, and then they continue to develop through the medieval and early modern period. But as we were working on this book, we were looking at those early centuries, and I was trying to look for what is what are the essences of, uh, yeah, yeah. of early Christian worship in those first centuries. And so I focused on prayers, hymns, baptism, and Eucharist. What do you feel when you're in your own worship service I mean, do you feel a kinship with these early people because of those same practices that are done in some way in your tradition? I do, although the forms in my tradition have also developed and are are more modern. But yeah, the basic practices are are there and they're sometimes really profound moments of connection for me personally because I've spent a lot of time reading about how ancient Christians Mm -hmm. also worshiped. One thing that has always really touched me is that during Jesus' ministry, he made it a practice to sit down and dine with people and share mm. food and drink with people. And as part of his intentional outreach, table fellowship in the ancient world was more than just sharing food and drink and satisfying thirst and hunger, but it was to really affirm a bond of trust and of friendship. And Jesus reached out to people who were often on the margins, sometimes dining with all the wrong people, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the tax collectors and sinners. But it was part of his outreach to welcome all into the kingdom. And sometimes it, uh, it kind of scandalized some of the more rigorous religious people in his environment. But he made that a part of his, his ministry. And early Christians, after the time of Jesus, as they got together in their meetings and they would partake of what we call Eucharist communion, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they often had a really self-conscious sense that they were reenacting Jesus's practice of table fellowship and his feeding miracles, all Mm. of which looked forward to the messianic feast in the age to come. And they were living out and experiencing that messianic age in its earliest manifestations. And that to me has been really meaningful. It's just added more depth to my own experience of going to my congregation's communion services. So are you saying church potlucks are doctrinal? Uh, There is a real, (laughs) there's a real history to that. (laughs) We wanted to go to some of these places. And in Turkey, we had the chance to explore the Gorome Open Air Museum in the Cappadocia region 
where Christians were living and worshiping in community, carving out grottos for small chapels. Early on our second morning in Nevshahir, we drove to the open-air museum under a blue sky filled with colorful hot-air balloons. We parked in an empty lot because our guide, Guven, had made arrangements for early access to the caves before the park was officially opened. We climbed the hill from the parking lot to the rock formations, followed by several white-haired Anatolian mastiffs, huge dogs, who shepherded us through the park. The different chapels were carved out of those funny, droopy-looking hills, as if dollops of gray sediment had been dropped from above. The particular rock in this area that's roughly the size of the state of Massachusetts was really soft. You could carve into it, which made it perfect for making a storage place. Or maybe you could dig in and make a house, build a house in front of it and have that in the back. But also, once early Christians started coming to this area, they started making churches. And we're about to see some of these incredible churches they've literally carved into the rock. They have frescoes that have been there for 1,600 years. That's what I'm really excited to see. They were dedicated to particular saints, and there was something about them that made it a pilgrimage point. For instance, if you wanted a blessing from a particular saint, you could stop and scratch the soft rock, take some powder home, and mix it in your food, or if the person who needed a miracle or was hoping for some sort of blessing. And this was a pilgrimage point, yes, but also a way station. If you were in Constantinople and you want to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, this is the perfect halfway point to be able to stop, to rest, to be able to get supplies. And there's a tradition that St. Paul has been here, Paul from the New Testament. He was born in Tarsus, which is only about 250 kilometers from here, so it's possible. The first cave church I visited is dedicated to St. Basil who was known for supporting the Nicene Creed and his care for the poor, while also developing guidelines for monastic life. The cave walls are rough and white, but carved in the recognizable shape of a Christian church, and the space is large enough for a central nave or aisle that lets you see recessed side chapels called apses, each dedicated to a different saint. The frescoes on the walls are in various shades of red and ochre, including a representation of St. Basil, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus. One of the reasons I'm so excited to be here in this church of St. Basil in the area is because early Christians, first they were going to their synagogue still, but then they were kicked out. They were persecuted. The only way they would meet, and we read this in the New Testament, someone perhaps would have a house that was big enough, and so they would hold regular meetings and what we would call church services. They would come together, they would have the communion or the sacrament of the bread and the wine. But this is one of those places where the early Christians start getting together and now they have their own space, which is the beginning of a church. And so they would have a place they could come to to be able to hold those services that was dedicated for that purpose, not just meeting in someone's home. Outside, we walked next to the nunnery, a collection of small cells carved into the rock wall. Looking up at the 100-foot cliff face, it's difficult to imagine the nuns clabbering up precarious ropes and ladders to enter the tiny holes that remind me of an owl's nest in a tree. There's barely enough space to lie down or pray. So some of the places that we see all around and behind were monasteries that you could withdraw from the world. Once the Emperor Constantine made Christianity legitimate or the state religion and it was okay, there are some people who felt that because it was so widespread and that it sort of watered down the doctrine a little bit and they wanted to escape from that and they would come to refuges, places like this, where they could have their own way of praying and there's even a nunnery here, one of the places where the women could come as well. The next cave is dedicated to St. Barbara, a Greek martyr who had been killed by her father for practicing Christianity. This chapel's exterior is simple white sandstone, but as you enter, the ceiling soars up above you. 
A dome has been carved above with a cross surrounded by azure blue. The walls are crowded with a profusion of images of saints and Bible stories in reds and grays. The incredible effort needed to accomplish this work is stunning. But even more impactful is that these same frescoes have been defaced. This is the Church of St. Barbara, and it's a good example first of carving a church into the rock, then decorating it so it could feel like a place you'd actually built out of marble and with columns and all the rest, the way it's decorated. And then there was a period called the iconoclastic period, where people were wanting to destroy images and saying, no, you're worshiping the images and not God. Some of these that were painted were used just to bring to mind the events about the people or to tell the stories like we might have a painting in a church or a chapel today. This particular fresco has been damaged and almost like someone's taken a chisel to chip away and, and destroy the face. One of the last churches we visit, the Apple Church, was also defaced, but the frescoes remain impressive. In spite of the damage, they have a solemn spiritual power. They're not the primitive drawings of St. Basil or St. Barbara's Church. These are detailed paintings crafted with skill that's reminiscent of the glorious basilicas like the Hagia Sophia. The images tell stories, Abraham entertaining angels, Old Testament prophets, Lazarus, and the events of Holy Week, all scattered across walls in deep red, yellow, and blue, with ornate borders offsetting the different paintings. Above the image of Jesus on the cross are two lines of Greek. The earth is shaken and the whole of creation trembles. The mother Mary mourns and the disciple John weeps on seeing the God of glory upon the cross. If you go to an Orthodox church today, Greek Orthodox, Armenian, whatever it might be, you will recognize a certain style of painting, certain colors and certain ways of drawing the figures. You always know where you are, what kind of church you're in. And this cave, this cave that's a church known as the Apple Church because of some of the iconography, is where this began. And you can look and see the, the use of the colors and the figures, even the faces. And I think whenever I'm in an Orthodox church in the future, I'm going to remember this little church carved into the cave and where it began. Different traditions in Christianity have different ideas about whether a chapel or a place of worship should be completely plain and simple or whether it should be highly decorated. But what I feel here, and this is part of my Christian tradition, to see images of Christ is a connection with the people who had the faith and for whom this was important to create really a holy space. And one of the ways they made it holy was these images from stories from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and stories of the saints and their faithfulness. And so when I look around and I see Christ on the cross, I see a depiction of him in the tomb and then coming forth when I see him with his disciples for the Last Supper. I just feel a connection that I know there is something I have in common with them. So when I come to a place like this, I'm not analyzing which is the best way to do something. This was the way they thought was the best, and I want to honor that, and it, it really touches me. Let's get back to my interview with Professors Ellison and Gray, because they also discussed the transition from humble house churches to stunning basilicas, huge structures that reflect not only the cultural influence of Christianity, but also its economic and political strength. Matthew, I want to ask you about the glory of the later buildings. You cannot go in those buildings and sing and really not have what you call a religious experience. Maybe I'm, I'm obviously bringing something to it, but they were onto something when they were trying to create something to inspire. Can you talk about how that happened. Yeah, it's a remarkable story, and you're right. These are remarkable spaces. So historically, the moment where we begin to see these monumental Christian church structures is around the 4th century. 
AD. And it comes, of course, in the wake of the monumental political and cultural shifts that come with Constantine's conversion to Christianity, where for the first time, not only is Christianity now legalized within the Roman Empire, but within a few decades, it will become, in fact, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so whereas just a few generations earlier, Christians were meeting in fairly obscure residential settings, by the mid to late 4th centuries, they're now meeting in what are essentially state-sponsored sanctuaries, prominent monumental structures. So so that's how they could do it. They had support of the state, not just the Exactly right. It's an imperial patronage in some way. There were many people within the Roman Empire through the Byzantine period who who were not Christians and who were adhering to earlier Greco-Roman forms of worship and practice. And so to see their public spaces erased in some way, to see in their places these large Christian basilicas and worship spaces come up. And in some cases, Christian church builders would even take old Greco-Roman temples and renovate them to become Christian churches as almost a symbol or a sign of of, of replacement or mm-hmm. supersession. Like this, we're taking the old sanctuary and we're turning it now to the as the house of the God of our new religious mm-hmm. system. And so there's a lot of fascinating dynamics with that throughout the Roman Empire for probably several generations as things were gradually shifting from a Greco-Roman world into a Byzantine Christian one. And so the architectural form that seemed to be the most useful for creating those public sanctuary spaces in the 4th century and beyond was the ancient basilica. So a basilica was a public meeting space or at least an architectural form of a public meeting space going all the way back into the Greco-Roman period where it could be used for any kind of audience with state officials, judicial settings, all sorts of different public gatherings. And so basically the structure and the architectural layout of a basilica was easily adaptable to create these monumental Christian assembly spaces where you'd have a nave or a central space in the middle where the congregation could gather. You'd have side aisles separated off by columns. And then at the end of the basilica, you'd have an apse, a semicircular space that might be raised up that will probably have a screen in front of it to separate out that space as the most holy space in the building. And it's behind that screen in the apse that you'll probably have the Eucharistic altar and maybe even a semicircle of benches for the bishop or the clergy to sit. And so it's that adapted basilica space that becomes the framework for monumental church architecture. And once you see those churches develop, it really is a remarkable reminder of what 4th century, 5th century Christianity, how they viewed their sacred spaces as a place where it's like these are the new temples. These are the new places where God's presence is found, where it can be encountered. And it's going to be the rituals that are performed within that monumental church space that will literally bring heaven and earth together and bring the earthly congregation into communion with the the heavenly throne room. So between divine power and community formation, those monumental structures are pretty remarkable. Well, I highlighted exactly what you just said because uh, that summation, that connection, they had lost the temple. They were kicked out of synagogues, but they end up, just what you said, coming full circle with building another earthly temple to connect people with heaven. And I wonder if you could read a little from 179. Sure. The development of sacred space and liturgy in early Christianity provides profound insight into the unfolding history, theology, self-perception, religious experience, and social dynamics of the movement's first several centuries. Through surveying its places of worship, ranging from the 1st to 6th century, this chapter has highlighted the origins of Christianity as a small Jewish sect that was fully involved in the institutions of early Judaism, the Jerusalem temple and public synagogues. Its gradual marginalization and separation from these institutions, the creation of unique Christian spaces in private settings, including house churches and domus ecclesiae, and ultimately the construction of monumental basilicas that stood as public proclamations of Christianity and that allowed believers to experience their own Christ-centered temple space. Thank you. And Mark, this makes me wonder, you know, the Bible said, told Solomon how to build his temple, even the dimensions and what it should be made out of. We got none of that from the New Testament. It seems like we're all just doing the best we can, and people are saying, well, let's build something beautiful for God. And it's really interesting to me to think how much of it is the invention of men and women to create an experience, and then how much of it is essential worship. Could you read for us from page 232? 
Ancient Christian rituals were multisensory experiences that engaged the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, physical actions and postures, words spoken or chanted or sung, the hearing of these words and melodies, the experience of feeling water or oil on the skin, tasting bread and wine, breathing in the fragrance of incense, seeing light and images and architecture, sensing sacred space, listening to instruction on the meanings of rituals, all these immersed worshipers in learning, remembering, feeling, and expressing religious devotion. You relate to that. I yeah. mean, you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming you relate to this. Yeah, and it's interesting what you were saying a moment ago about, like, uh, what is the human, what is the divine in this? And and maybe there's a synergy, maybe there's a cooperation going on there where human beings are responding to the 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 workings of the divine within them, their sense of the divine. And we've always, throughout history, we human beings have been moved upon to express our sense of the divine in multiple ways through words. And, and some people have been able to write and read and, and produce texts, but we've also produced visual art and architecture and music and poetry and hymns and just through a, a multitude of ways we express our experiences of the divine. And religious communities gather these expressions and make them a part of their own religious life. I'm taken by that and as I've studied it, it's deepened my own experience of my own opportunities for worship. One that I, I really like is in the converted house church that Matt was talking about a few minutes ago in Dura Europa in Syria, which was turned from a house into a church meeting space in around the 240s AD. That community that met there constructed a small little room that they turned into a baptistry. And right over the baptismal font, they painted a picture of a good shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders back to a flock that's grazing and, and drinking at water's edge. And so ancient Christians were getting baptized right under that work of art. And that work of art said something about what they were experiencing, that to be baptized was to be rescued by the Good Shepherd, to form a relationship with, with Christ, and to be brought into the fold of the church where there is continual nourishment there at water's edge. And that's caused me to deepen my own appreciation for when I was baptized, uh, to think about it in new and, and richer ways. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. As you encounter these varieties of sacred space, different aspects of your spiritual life and experience start coming to mind. And so I really appreciate all of those things and uh, cultivating what Christopher Stendhal once called holy envy and being mm -hmm. able to see things that may not be part of my own modern faith tradition, but that can speak to my soul in a way that I can appreciate and, and learn from and, and be inspired by. And so as I study sacred space, generally, whether it be the ancient Jerusalem temple, early synagogues, early house churches, or these beautiful monumental basilical churches that we're talking about today. It really recalls some of the scholarship on sacred spaces, which focus on kind of three main things that sacred space does. It allows for the encounter with the divine. It allows for community formation and then personal transformation. And for me, all three of those categories can be experienced in so many of these different spaces where you're in a space where, uh, for example, community formation, one of my favorite metaphors that early Christians use for their gathering is that they are the new household of God, right? Or they're the family of God because originally this is going to be a group that's fairly socially marginalized. It's a cultural or religious minority community within the larger Roman Empire. So but, using but space— they have each other. Exactly. And using space, especially household space, to look at each other as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers within the household of faith uh, is a really powerful way that space can foster that community formation. So on the one hand, it is encountering the divine, maybe recalling the metaphor of a new temple where God's presence can be felt and encountered. But on the other hand, is also about community formation. I'm part of a group. I'm part of a fellowship. I'm part of a family of faith. And these spaces and the rituals that are often performed in these spaces, whether it be ancient or modern, can be a very powerful mechanism to do all three of those things, divine encounter, community formation, and personal transformation. In our last episode, we were in Ephesus. And while there, we went to the ruins of a basilica dedicated to John the Beloved, built in the 6th century under the rule of Justinian I. The site where you find the excavation is a small, unassuming town. We parked across from a cafe 
then followed a cat past the guards up a path to a breezy hilltop. We could see the top of Isa Bay Mosque right next door. And this is the hill, the original hill where John lived when he was in Ephesus. And later on, when Christianity became the religion, they constructed this basilica because they thought this place was a holy place. And that's why they constructed this basilica. And the architect was the same with the person who constructed Hagia Sophia Church, mm. Isiodorus of Miletus. Shall we see the baptistry? Yes. And John was asked to take care of Mary, okay? That's why, uh, you know, we have Mary here. And uh, who else would you leave your mother to other than someone, you know, who's never going to die? <laughs> so. And this is one of the first that was built as a Church of the Cross with the, with the side, so it's in the shape of a cross here? Yes, you can see it also has the shape of cross. And here, outside, we are going to visit, we have the baptistry, which is the octagon shape, eight size. The building must have been massive, yet all that was standing was a few rows of columns and the arch in the brick facade. Marble blocks littered the hilltop, and we examined a proposed model of the original building that imagines the basilica with several domes. We might assume, after seeing the beauty of the humble cave churches in Cappadocia, that this basilica was just as richly decorated. I'm sitting here now with producer Heather Bigley, reflecting back on the cave churches that we explored in Cappadocia. And I did not know at the time that you were sort of taking deep, breaths to go through those <laughs> narrow spaces. Yeah, when I listen back on the audio, there's a lot of different people panting trying to get through the caves, which were, again, another sort of startling and stunning aspect of our trip. The idea that these people were hiding potentially from Roman soldiers who were coming to harass them or to arrest them, and that they thought through all of these different defensive strategies and long-term storage ideas. It was just, it was pretty amazing. It's one thing to think I dug a cave and I covered the entrance <laughs> with a board and a tree and some dirt. It's another thing to hunch over as we did and go 60 feet, 80 feet, five levels down right. into these spaces. And then the dedication and the belief astounds me that they were so dedicated in spite of the persecution. Yeah. And then, not that far away, were these gorgeous caves that have been decorated as cave churches for people who wanted to escape the new Roman Christianity. That was fascinating to me. So many Christians might think, hooray, the Romans convert, <laughs> and now we're all Christian. But there were a lot of folks who had been Christian who thought, oh no, it's been co-opted by the emperor and now this this is not the real thing right now. Yeah. And so escaped into these remote, remote places in these mystical looking rocks that look, as we described, like you built sandcastles and <laughs> let them dribble through your fingers and then and then harden. It's it's astounding. Yeah. I remember standing outside of these caves while you were inside filming and you left, you walked away, and then I went in and I was like, what in the world? <laughs> How is it possible? This is fantastic. So fantastic. And again, going back to that idea of, I think we have this idea that, oh, they're just like us. And in a lot of ways, they are just like us. But I don't know if I would have, you know, said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm hitting the road. I'm going to find a cave. Yeah, that like I am going to go live the hardest possible right. life I can imagine so that I can be true to what I feel is my faith. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Uh, and then there's John the Basilica. Visiting the Basilica was, again, one of these typical Turkish experiences where here we are at this Basilica. We can see the mosque right next door, right? There are guard cats shepherding us <laughs> through. It's beautiful. But yes, crammed up right against a mosque. Right. And just that juxtaposition of past and present is everywhere we go when we're exploring 
faith in this area. Be sure and check out YouTube for videos on location in Cappadocia. And next week, we'll explore Hagia Sophia, the jewel of Constantinople. Many thanks to Mark Ellison, Matthew Gray, and Lutfi Bedar for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engerbretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Mitchell Towsley, and Carly Wilson. Our opening music is The Cut Meadow, performed by Yeti Karanfil for Essen Music. You can hear more on Spotify. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like In Good Faith, be sure to leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith. Have we explained about the cats? Um, essentially, in the Quran, there's some edict about cleanliness, which uh, means a lot of people, and especially in Turkey, feel that they can't have pets. And so people do have pets, but they're communal pets, uh, from what I understand. Um, the Turkish, like whatever city you're in, that city will make sure that the the dogs and cats that live outside in the streets get their shots and are taken care of in that way. And then different, you know, like blocks or neighborhoods are assigned to take care of and feed the uh, cats or the dogs. And so I think we mentioned this before. Um, when we were seeing the cave churches, there were these three huge dogs uh, who just, you know, were completely socialized and friendly. They kind of growled at each other a little bit, but they followed us around. And then there were cats everywhere and they were completely friendly. And, you know, at our hotel in Istanbul, there was a cat who sort of hung out um, at the front door waiting for us at night. And, um, you know, we'd go to different uh, ruins and there would be a cat there waiting for us. And so, yeah, there was a cat at the Basilica of John waiting for us to show up um, and guide us in. Uh, so sort of adorable. It was just it was just a wonderful, wonderful visit. <laughs>